This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Jason Schwartz, and he is the president of Wilshire Funds Management and Wilshire Analytics, a company that has been around since 1972 and is perhaps best known uh, for its famous index, the Wilshire 5000, really the first total market index that existed. Wilshire is a fairly substantial company that advises on a ton of assets and manages a decent sum of assets themselves, but they are a far more interesting and complicated uh, firm than I had any idea prior to doing some research for this conversation. Uh, They are involved in all sorts of really fascinating things, and I think the average person or even the person who works in finance may not really be all that familiar uh, with what Wilshire actually does. And I found this conversation to be quite fascinating. So with no further ado, my interview of Jason Schwartz of Wilshire Fund Management. My special guest this week is Jason Schwartz. He is the president of Wilshire Funds Management and Wilshire Analytics, where he has worked since 2005. He has an AB in government from Hamilton College and an MBA from the Marshall School of Business at USC. Wilshire is probably best known for the Wilshire 5000 stock index. They advise on approximately a trillion dollars in institutional assets, another $180 billion in broker-dealer and RIA assets, and their mutual fund and other related businesses have approximately $50 billion in assets under management. Jason Schwartz, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks, Barry. Great to be here. Um, So I was really fascinated about uh, talking to you because, like many people, I'm familiar with Wilshire due to the 5000 index, and we'll get into that index a little later. But as I was doing a little reading about the farm before our conversation, I was really astonished at the history, uh, the various business lines you, you guys have. It's its really a fascinating company. Tell us a little bit about your background and how did you find your way to Wilshire? Sure. So um, I uh, grew up here in, in New York and, uh, you know, was, was exposed to finance, um, investment management. I had an early kind of internship at, a, at an RIA, a multifamily office here that was engaged in some you know, manager research, manager selection activities. So I, I had a, a bit of a uh, some early exposure to to that. You know, being able to sit across the table from uh, you know portfolio managers and investment managers, and and really really interesting. Um, but I, you know, like a lot of uh, young people, I, I sort of had a, a number of um, uh, you know career experiences in my twenties before I went to business school. I did a little bit of sales and marketing, a little bit of. Uh, technology, a little bit of finance, and I got to business school, uh, and I and I chose to go to uh, spend two years in in Southern California at, at USC. Right, uh, not not the worst weather in the world. No, and and it you know as a 26 year old, it, it seemed like a, a nice place to to park for a couple of years. But uh, you know, as a as a you know as a New Yorker, I would then you know immediately return. Right, uh, it was not a place to stay. Um, and you know, after about three months. Uh, <laughs> There uh, felt like um, you know this place certainly isn't isn't so bad, and and I'll, I'll say that's really where um, we all have sort of pivotal moments. And and I was uh, 
Uh, I started business school in 2001, right? So po- post kind of dot com mm-hmm. bubble, and uh, you know, job market was still was still tough. And you know, after business school, I, I just needed a job, right? Mm-hmm. And and was um, I think like a lot of uh, young people was uh, you know cast a wide net and was uh, you know looking for jobs. I would say not necessarily in in my areas of passion per se. Um, and 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 um, in my second year of business school, Barry, we uh, I was I was part of this um, seminar on applied portfolio management, which allowed us to kind of manage a portion of the school's endowment and really get kind of a taste for for managing assets, managing money. And as part of that, we were able to visit uh, a number of of different investment organizations up and down the the West Coast. And one of the firms that we met was Dimensional Fund Advisors sure. DFA, mm-hmm. which uh, if you've ever been to their office in Santa Monica. They had at the time they had the top uh, two floors of this gorgeous building looking right out at the ocean, and we're being hosted by a, a number of folks at, at at DFA, and there's maybe ten of us, and we're sitting in this boardroom looking out over the ocean. It's maybe eighty degrees. The beach is packed with people. Spectacular, spectacular. And and I reached um, to my uh, friend who's sitting next to me, Craig Greenwald, and I said, Craig, I don't care what I do, I just want to work in this building. <laughs> and so. Uh, you know, flash forward two years, I was working as a management consultant because I, I just I needed a job after business school, and that seemed like a you know respectable thing to do. Sure. And um, I was still you know sending out resumes. And uh, two years after business school, I you know I'd probably sent Wilshire um, a bunch of resumes. Had done some research, and it turned out Wilshire was in the same building as DFA. Oh, that's hilarious. And so. Uh, and so, is that where you are still working, or has the headquarters since moved? We are still there. Wow, and so you get you get that actual view that you were every single looking day. for. In uh, I, I'm more impressed that USC actually gave their MBA students part of the endowment to run. Yeah. How yeah. how did that work out? That was great. I mean, that was a I you know I, I um, owe a, a huge debt of gratitude to that program and and the um, professor uh, Su Ping Ku who uh, worked with us. Uh, it was a great a great opportunity and. Um, we we were divided into a few different teams. Um, there was like a mid cap group. There was a large cap group. You know, some folks in the community had had donated money for us to um, you know kind of mess around with and experiment with. You mean separate from the usual alumni donation to the foundation, a separate pool of money was raised for this is for the MBA students Correct. to sort of get their feet wet. Correct. Uh, managing real assets. That's right. That's wow. Right. That's yeah. fascinating. What was the performance like? Oh man, it was uh, it, you know, that's a long time ago, Barry. That's <laughs> uh, I, I would say, and that was not an easy period to be an investor. No, right after the dot coms, right before the financial collapse, right, certainly, right. I mean, it was, it was, uh, you know, we were still, we had all through the '90s, right, were raised on, you know, go go grow stocks and technology, and so right. it was a completely different, you know, paradigm shift. Uh, you know, value was was obviously doing well. Um, but small caps and growth were, were not, I, you know, but what was interesting is, is for me, um, it brought to the forefront, the different roles mm-hmm. really within investment organizations. And so interestingly, I, you know, had at that point developed a facility with numbers and was, you know, kind of studying the space and, and all of the, you know, modern portfolio theory. And, uh, but I, you know, w- had realized that where my passion really, um, was at, at that point was, 
was not so much being an analyst in the trenches with the numbers every day, all day. But but if I could, gosh, if I could get a role that allowed me to engage with clients and mm-hmm. and, and do some of the other things related to uh, working in this industry, wouldn't that be great? Let's talk a little bit about the product you're probably best known for, the Wilshire 5000, which contains these days about 3,500 stocks. Is that right? Why doesn't the Wilshire 5000 have 5,000 stocks? Right. So um, you're you're correct that there's I think just under 3,500 stocks today in the Wilshire 5000. Uh, the Wilshire 5000 was um, created in 1974, and at the time it was the first uh, really broad-based uh, measurement of the U.S. equity market. And still today, when people refer to the total you know U.S. stock market. They're often referencing the Wilshire 5000. Right. So, um, you know, it was a really important innovation for us, uh, dating back to the to the 70s. And and the reason um, there was roughly 5,000 securities when the Wilshire 5000 was launched, uh, the peak was, um, as you probably know, about 7,500 securities uh, in 1998. Mm-hmm. Right. So that was, um, you know, in an environment where companies were racing to go public. Right. To say the least. To say the least. And so, uh, you know, post dot com crash, there were a number of delistings. There were companies that clearly went out of business. So that dramatically lowered the count. Right. Delistings. A lot of listed stocks ended up going pink sheets and bulletin boards and especially the micro. I think there was some thousand or two thousand micro caps. That's right. Fell off, uh, fell off the radar. Right. So there really aren't five thousand investable companies to put in the in the 5000 even if you wanted to. Right. And and I think the other the other um you know key theme in today's environment really is around private capital. Uh-huh. Right? So companies are staying private for longer um and are able to do so without needing to go to the public equity markets to raise capital. So so there is, you know, the the IPO environment has not been what it was in the 90s and so therefore there are roughly 3500 Publicly traded securities today. Sure, look at look at companies like Uber and WeWorks and giant multi billion dollar firms. Years ago, they never would have been able to get that large. That's right. To say the least. So so let's talk a little bit about um, what your assets look like and what the company actually does. So you have we were talking earlier. You have about one hundred eighty billion dollars in assets under management. How does that break down? Is that stocks, bonds? Non-public assets. What's the mix of sure. that? So um, we um, we have about 180 billion dollars in assets that we advise on for what we call financial intermediaries, and these mm-hmm. are organizations, financial institutions that ultimately serve individual investors. Right. And so this this really for us for for our organization stems from the work that we've done in the institutional space. So. Um, you know, we talked about the Wilshire 5000. The, the Wilshire's first decade in the 1970s was really as a as one of the the early pioneers in applying technology to solve investment management problems. Mm-hmm. And so um, the Wilshire I, 5000. I have to interrupt you at this point and point out that your founder is literally a rocket scientist who was at JPL before forming uh Wilshire in 72, is it? 72, is that right? that's right. Yeah, that's right. So that's, that is that is a really important, it's a great story, but it's also a really important part of our heritage. So Dennis Tito, uh, Wilshire's founder, uh, currently our, our chairman and CEO, still active in the business, uh, was at JPL and was a was an aerospace engineer. And this was at a time where the most powerful computer technology 
uh, was resident NASA JPL right. where, where they were you know trying to figure out how to how to program the trajectory of of unmanned spacecraft. And so as the space race was winding down, and that was really Dennis's calling, he was called to uh, to participate in that. Um, so late '60s, early '70s, Dennis was was thinking about how to transition and and you know ultimately how to make some money, and and really recognized at an early point that intersection of of investment technology um, or information technology and and finance. And so the first product that Wilshire launched in 1972 was a was one of the first commercially viable ways to calculate an equity beta. Hmm. And so that was 1972. We and take it for granted. You could either log on to a Bloomberg or even use a, a website and generate half the data points we just take for granted. For granted. That didn't exist back right. then. And this was the stuff of, I mean, this predates me. Um, uh, this was the stuff of slide rules and, and, and you know, really wow. sort of, you know, uh, uh, hard computational math. And so applying really strong math to solve investment challenges. Um, so the first, you know, commercially viable way to measure an equity beta, which became our kind of multi-factor risk attribution model, which exists today, by the way. Multi-factor attribution risk model. Right. So, so you're trying to figure out what is it it is that's actually driving uh, a market's gains, how do you attribute that to, to what specific elements and factors? That's exactly right. So if you are able to decompose a manager's return into its component pieces and isolate you know, all sorts of different factors, um, you can basically separate, was this manager good at picking stocks or was this manager benefiting from an overweight to energy or technology or momentum or certain fundamental or were they just factors? really leveraging up and taking a lot of risk? Or a lot of, right. So, so it's, it's for us- the essence, ultimately, of investment management, when we talk about how we got there, starts with with a foundation in risk management. Mm -hmm. And so those tools didn't exist, so Wilshire built them through the 70s. And, you know, other tools like, um, you know, one of the first asset liability models for pension funds. In order to match their future liabilities and obligations to their current portfolio? Correct. Is that That's exactly right. It's amazing that all these things we take for granted did not exist at one did point in time. Exist. And not a hundred years ago. We're talking thirty-five years That's ago. Right. That's, That's right. That's amazing. That's right. And 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 the pace of change continues to be, you know, rapid. But as much as uh, the business has changed, clearly, um, you know, risk and the ability to measure um, and present that information is is critically important. So this was this was Wilshire's first decade, and and was you know really known as a as a pioneer and provider of these types of risk applications. In 1981, we we launched. One of the first full-service U.S. consulting businesses, and and the goal here was to not just provide tools, but to provide advice to pension funds and foundations and endowments uh, to help them apply some of these tools, asset liability management, to create asset allocation policies, to help them select managers, to help them build their portfolios, um, and so this is this this is uh, when you think of. Um, the work that investment consultants do mm -hmm. in helping pension funds, uh, you know, create, uh, you know, investment programs designed to serve their participants really in perpetuity. Wilshire's been at the forefront of that business for, um, for almost three decades. Wow. Quite fascinating. Let's talk a little bit about how the business has changed at Wilshire over the past um, couple of decades. You've been there for 15 years. You've certainly seen a lot of changes. And we were discussing previously how the firm just really began as a technology and analytics company. 
How has the past uh, decade or two changed your mm. business model? Sure. Well, I, I joined uh, Wilshire in 2005 into what was at the time a, a relatively new um, new business that Wilshire had created called Wilshire Funds Management. And um, you know this was in its early days. And the, the, the idea behind Wilshire Funds Management was to take the firm's institutional expertise, its risk management capabilities, and provide uh, investment advisory solutions designed really for financial advisors and their individual investor clients. And so, um, you know, our first clients at the at, at the time, and we only had a, f- a handful, were insurance companies mm-hmm. um, and some broker dealers that were looking for the same types of multi-asset, multi-manager, kind of risk-managed solutions that that you know our pension fund clients were were able to to you know to to have. So that means not just going out and buying a mutual fund, but having access to a suite of different different. Managers in different asset classes, is that right? Right. So it's, it's you know, when we look at the things that institutional investors um, do well, it, they tend to invest in a lot of things, a lot of asset classes, right? They own a lot of asset classes. They're highly diversified. Um, they typically implement those views with managers, um, also now increasingly, you know, uh, passive components of those portfolios. Um, and they blend everything together in a way that's designed to, to really optimize a particular outcome. Financial advisors, you know, in many cases, in most cases, are doing the same thing. Uh, certainly, those that are using funds or fund products or ETFs to build portfolios, and so you know, the market has been shifting to um, you know that of of more of an advice embedded model. And Wilshire has been able to participate in that. And and so I, you know, it was fortuitous the timing of when I joined the firm, but you know, over the last you know decade or so, we've grown you know rapidly. Um, as one of the you know premier providers of these types of services to uh, the intermediary market. So let me ask you about a division that caught my eye when I was doing a little homework. What is the Wilshire Segregated Portfolio Companies? Right. So these are um, these are that's a fancy name for our Cayman uh, hedge fund platform. Mm-hmm. And so these are. Um, you know, th- this is a platform that was created actually in two thousand and five. Um, Right around the time that I joined, at the time it was created, there was this this belief um, that still exists in some respects today that that you know if you're able to you, you want to hire a hedge fund, mm-hmm. right? You want that that hedge funds trading prowess. You want their exceptional ability to uh, to to buy securities and generate performance. But um, you know many uh, people may be uncomfortable with the operational risk that comes with that. The fact that uh, you know, you don't have a lot of transparency or control over those assets necessarily. You're just a an investor in an LP. And how do you pick out of the eleven thousand funds and that how are do you out there? Pick out of the eleven thousand. So we set out to solve that in two ways. One of which was structural, where if we could essentially just have the hedge fund manager run a separate account, uh-huh. right, where they just have trading authority, but Wilshire controls the the counterparty relationships, et cetera. Um, and Wilshire as a fiduciary, right, would would provide a level of of you know trust to the market to our clients. Sure. And then the other you know element of that is if we could identify uh, you know highly skilled investment managers using our you know research platform, using the fact that we you know obviously are engaged in a lot of these activities for uh, you know a trillion dollars in assets. We have combination of buying power. We have. We think the ability to separate you know skill from luck, et cetera. So and and a pretty big network. Uh- 
contained therein. Correct. You guys do something similar on the private equity side? Do you break it out separately, or is it all part of the same platform? So that's a different that's a different business unit, Wilshire Private Markets, um, and and you know similar in the sense that 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 business is is you know today looks much like a, a private equity asset manager. Um, you know, started out as as building customized fund of funds for for institutional investors, and today, uh, you know, has a, a a large array of of fund of funds, increasingly customized advisory work in the private markets. Uh, Makes sense. Uh, I've been racking my brain trying to figure out who a competitor to Wilshire is, and. I can't really think of anybody. I mean, maybe S and P, but even them, it's not really the same. Like, who do you look at as actual competitors, if anybody? Right. So I think you have to look at the different components of our biz- business, which um, you know, as you've noted, is is broad based. You know, look on the consulting side of our business, um, a lot of you know large fortuitous competitors there. The the you know the the towers, the the aeons. Um, the Mercers uh, of the world, uh, you know, as well as a, a number of, of mid-market players, you know, in the work that we do um, in the financial intermediary market, um, you know, Morningstar is a, a, you know, a formidable competitor, obviously as a, a great brand uh, in the retail uh, advisor community, um, you know, certainly on the index side of our business, right, uh, uh, you know, FTSE, MSCI, S&P, on the private market side, probably firms like Hamilton Lane and, and others. So, so you know, because we don't do one thing, we have, um, which I think is a, a great strength, um, you know, we compete with different people in different parts of the market. M- makes sense. You know, earlier we were discussing uh, Dennis Tito, uh, whose background was astronautics and aeronautics. And uh, he also is somewhat famous for being the world's first paying space tourist. Mm. He went up to the, was it the International Space Station? Is that right? That's right. Um, so given that background, how did that impact how Wilshire developed? Was that significant or just an interesting footnote? Yeah, I mean, I think we it's consistent with our, you know, our heritage. Um, and Dennis, uh, you know, this was, this was his passion uh, early in his career. And... Um, you know, had an opportunity. It's actually a, a remarkable story of persistence um, because, it, you know, it was a difficult thing to do. He was, I think at the time, the oldest, uh, I think it might have been the oldest person. Uh, he's going to kill me for saying this, but uh, <laughs> the oldest person um, launched, you know, into it, launched into space, let alone as a, as a civilian. Uh, he had to train, you know, for six months in, 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 in Russia where they, you know, really tried to get him to drop out. Um, and, you know, and will we tell the way we tell the story is, uh, you know, this is a guy who's has been focused on risk management his whole career. Right. I, I, you know, my understanding of the way that the payment of stru- it was structured was, you know, there was, you know, a certain amount to pay him up, uh, bring him up to space and then, uh, you know, a larger <laughs> amount to bring him back down. Uh, In other words, create an incentive to keep him alive. That's exactly right. That's very, that's very, very funny. So we were, we were discussing, um, I'm going to say that again. So the firm was pretty early in the world of indexes. The Wilshire 5000 in 74, I think that was the year Vanguard launched. So you were right there at the beginning of uh, the indices. Uh, back then, most indexes were used as benchmarks. Now they're really used as investment vehicles. How has that affected uh, the world of investing and how has it affected your firm? 
Sure. Well, it's, you know, for as a manufacturer of, of indexes, it's, it's certainly an economic opportunity. I think, you know, what started out as, you know, indexes as benchmarks, as you, as you note, is, is really uh, bl- blossomed or skyrocketed into a, is a great pl- proliferation of indexes. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and part of that is because, you know, asset managers are looking for very discrete ways of measuring their performance. And in some cases, you know, looking for ways to to tell a story against a benchmark, let's just get a better benchmark or a different benchmark, mm-hmm. um, which, which you know, I think is is I would say is a uh, not a particularly healthy part of the the industry. But I think the other element, which has been you know good for our business um, and those that are that are able to you know as a as a branded entity create indexes, is you know you have all this this intellectual property. You've got these smart people. You've got these quants, right? And now increasingly with you know factor based you know, quantitative strategies, um, one can create, um, you know, investment ideas, right? And so the, the pace of innovation around investment ideas, which can then be translated into an index, mm-hmm. right, which can then be licensed to a manufacturer, an ETF firm to package that license, uh, package that, that index um, and deliver that to the marketplace is, you know, is creating another wave of, of, uh, you know, product growth. New that's ideas. everything. That's everything from smart beta to factor based investing to ESG to pretty much you name it. There's an index for right. it. Right. There's an index underlying that strategy. Um, there's a crypto index coming out. There's a weed index coming out. Right. I mean, it's it's astonishing if you could come up with an investing style. Someone either has or is about to right. make an index. Is that a growth opportunity or are we now over indexed? Well, I think. Um, uh, probably both. I mean, it's a huge opportunity for us. Um, we're participating in that. I think, you know, for us, it's it's where can we bring great ideas with with partners, um, you know, not in a, a desire to just, just flood the market with, with product, but it's a great way to, uh, you know, we think bring new innovative concepts to the marketplace. But, but yeah, I mean, I read uh, there was a, a study recently that, that lo- looked at the number of indexes relative to total listed stocks. And it was like, you know, like there's something like four times the amount of indexes as there are just global stocks, right? So it, there is clearly this vast proliferation of indexes, um, you know, and, and, you know, we could also ask the question of, you know, does the does the market need, you know, two or 3,000 ETFs? And I think the answer to that is probably no. There's a, there's a real Darwinian battle for survival. And when we look at the distribution of assets and ETFs, it's a very much a fathead, long tail sort of, there's a handful of winners. It's BlackRock, Vanguard, and then pulling up at number three, State Street, and then right. everybody else. Are, are indexes more or less the same way? Is it a handful of big winners? And then a thousand also rounds, right? I, I think in the beta space, that's mm-hmm. correct, Barry. I think you know the the, the beta race is, has has essentially is it's the S and P five hundred, and that's pretty much correct. And and you know and and uh, iShares and 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 Vanguard and um, you know now Schwab and uh, you know a select few really own and own that market, right? And and you know what is the what are the prices for uh, you know broad market beta? It's you know increasingly free right mm-hmm. but i i think that the the market for um you know value add strategies for more niche strategies for for strategies that are designed to uh provide differential types of exposure um is still strong and and you know uh, ideas that can be packaged into solutions 
not just, you know, beta market beta per se. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the market for that will continue to be strong and, and great ideas will always have a place in, in investor portfolios. So, so let's talk a little bit about indexing and passive. And I would be remiss if I did not bring up the so-called robo-advisors or algorithmic asset allocations. How does that fit into the Wilshire worldview? Are these potential clients? Are they competitors? Are they just, hey, here's a cheap way to probably do it better than you're going to do it yourself? What What's your view on that? Uh, on robos? Yeah. You know, I think. Um, I, look, I mean, I think there's a number of things here. I think if you if you think about the way in which, um, you know, in some respect, asset managers engage with the market, it's it's archaic in the sense that most asset managers don't actually communicate directly with their clients, right? They they there's an intermediary. There's an intermediary between. between uh, that makes sense, right? And so, so I think there's this opportunity, which we're seeing, you know, a level of disruption where you've got this really what is a direct-to-consumer model, mm-hmm. right? So, um, which I- if we're talking about Vanguard or Schwab for sure, if you're talking about all the third-party robos who are using State Street, BlackRock, Vanguard, etc., they are the intermediary. Right, but they're but you know we take like a Betterment or a Wellfront or, mm-hmm. or some of these firms. Um, it strikes me that they are, you know, in in many respects disintermediating the traditional relationship between a financial advisor and a financial advisor's client. Sure, to right? some to some. To, the question I've always wondered about: Are they pulling their clients from advisors, or are they pulling their clients from previous do-it-yourselfers who kind of said? Maybe I need a little help with this, and I honestly don't know. I don't, the I don't know to that. either, and I think I think probably both. I think you know, maybe it's similar to online banking, right? Online banking, and the the thought there would people no longer go to branches, and right. um, you know, self directed brokerage was going to put everybody out of business. But but no, I mean, there's a, there's a, a level of self selection. I think I think clients will matriculate from a um, you know from essentially a self directed uh, experience to a financial advisor, I think, you know, uh, you know, as, as one's needs become more complex, more of the financial planning component becomes more relevant. So I, you know, I see this as a, as, as sort of an app, as an application. I I also, by the way, when we think about millennials and how millennials are going to consume investment advice, Right. I, I, you know, the notion of, you know, when I was a kid having dinner right around six or seven o'clock, the phone's ringing and it's like a, you know, Smith Barney broker. Right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, are our kids going to get cold called by a, a, you know, by a broker at dinner time? They don't even have landlines. Yeah. The, la- the last uh, interesting data point I saw on that was by next summer, by the summer of 2019, half of the calls coming into your mobile phone are going to be spam. So I don't know if they're going to be people pitching stock, but. I think that method of selling certainly has, has, if not disappeared, fallen by the wayside to a large degree. Right. I mean, when was the last time anyone got a call from someone pitching them, uh, you got to buy this IPO? Yeah. I, I don't think that's happened recently. Yeah. We have been speaking with Jason Schwartz, president of Wilshire Funds Management and Wilshire Analytics. If you enjoy this conversation about all things index, analytics, fund management, and institutional advisement, Be sure and come back and check out the podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all of the above. You can find that at Apple iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher, Bloomberg.com, 
wherever finer podcasts are sold. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column. That's at Bloomberg.com. You could follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Jason, thank you so much for doing this. I've been looking forward to, to having this conversation for quite a while. I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by what Wilshire does. It really is a unique firm compared to just about any other firm you want to put your your finger on. You guys do a lot of different things across a lot of different business lines. One business sector that I didn't get to uh, during the broadcast portion, but I have to ask you about is, and I know you don't run this division, but I, I'm fascinated by it, the Outsourced Chief Investment Officer, or OCIO. What exactly is that? Because I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with it, but probably not as much as I should be. Sure. So um, the OCIO business model is um, essentially calls for the discretionary management of an asset owner's fund or portfolio. And so, so so if I'm an RIA and I have a chief investment officer or I don't have a chief investment officer, I could outsource that that responsibility. Well, so the OCIO as you as you reference in our consulting business provides this service um, is really resident within the uh, institutional uh, pension fund foundation and endowment community. And what what it refers to really is is you know the traditional way historically that that pension funds have consumed investment advice is through a, a consultant meeting with an investment committee and board of trustees, generally providing non-discretionary advice. So the consultant would make recommendations and say, I think we should be uh, you know, using these managers and we'll do an asset liability study and and we'll, you know, construct this this really powerful asset allocation. And, and then it's either followed or not. It's either followed or not. Um and, you know, so with that, the uh, you know, the the asset owner has to have professional staff, they have to have governance frameworks, they have to have meetings, et cetera. And so with OCIO, it's all right, consultant, all right, Wilshire, here's a billion dollars, do it for me. Right. You make the decisions. We'll set up the frameworks, the governance. Uh, you know, there'll be certain parameters. But instead of you having to run all your recommendations through us and we meet for, you know, three months, six months and discuss it, bring your best, you know, your best thought leadership to bear, but under an environment where you have discretion. And, so, yeah. so basically that I'm guessing here, is that really aimed at some of the smaller funds that may not have the administrative and uh, staff and the resources to run a full CIO office and with all the bells, whistles and analysts, et cetera. Is, is that the sweet spot of that? That's that's fair. I mean, there's been some some larger, um, you know, some larger kind of OCIO engagements. But generally, I think you're starting to see a, a, a pretty clear bifurcation, you know, sub a billion dollars. I think it's getting increasingly difficult to make that case for Lots of overhead, um, you know, and increasingly we think the market's going to go more OCIO sub one billion, you know, and over over a billion there'll be all sorts of different levels of of customization. And, and that's especially if I'm um, again I'm guessing here, but small endowments, small pension funds, where there are future liabilities, and if you have a big and expensive staff relative to the size of the assets under management, it really could be a drag on long term returns. That's absolutely right. So it ma makes a lot of sense. I think of ETFs as just a wrapper 
that happens to be tax advantaged versus traditional 40 Act mutual funds. Am I grossly oversimplifying it, or is that basically what ETFs are? No, I think that's I think that's right. Um, so, so what does that mean in terms of you dis- discussed uh, intellectual property involved in managing and creating indexes? Uh, are we going to see more and more of those type of indexes become ETFs? Uh, what's the future? We we talked about a few thousand of them are out there, not all of which are attracting assets. What What's your view on the direction of the ETF industry? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there'll continue to be a proliferation of, of ETFs. I think we'll continue to see kind of a, a winner-take-all, um, you know, certainly on the beta side with more simplistic ETFs. Um, scale matters, you know, brand matters, but but you know the barriers to entry are are pretty low, mm-hmm. right? And and so I think you're you're going to continue to see a lot of additional ETFs. Um, you're also going to see more funds, right? I think last year was was the first year that we've mutual seen in a funds? while. Yeah, I think we're going to see more more fund products too. Mutual funds have just about a century of history. What what does it look like going forward for them? We think that the, you know, mutual funds will continue to exist. We're seeing fees come down. We're seeing increasingly, um, you know, fees being stripped out of mutual funds. Uh, that trend will continue. Um, you know, ETFs are are certainly helpful in that respect. Um, but you know, I think we ask ourselves the bigger question of: Could we offer personalized SMAs for individuals? Mm-hmm. Right. So so instead of everybody's in a pooled vehicle uh, in this mutual fund vehicle. Um, maybe we get to a point where technology will allow for for more mass customization, so everybody gets their own kind of SMA, right? Um, and I think that is something that um, you know, model delivery, UMAs. These are all sorts of innovations that are kind of at the at the fringe here. So someone says, I want the S and P five hundred, but I don't want I don't want gun stocks, or I don't want gambling stocks, or whatever it happens right. to be. You get the S and P five hundred minus whatever, or plus. Whatever it is you want, is that what you mean by right. custom? Uh, right, and that exists today at the higher end of the market, right? Mm-hmm. Where a, where a wealthy individual can have uh, an investment firm create a customized strategy, whether it's for for tax planning purposes or for um, you know stripping out certain types of securities. Um, uh, you know, ESG does this uh, mm-hmm. r- right pretty w- pretty well. But I think that the the ability to create those types of of vehicles for smaller account sizes will become increasingly um, a reality, which you know then calls into question the the viability of the mutual fund as really the the kind of default uh, package for many uh, individuals. Dave Nadig is um, managing director of ETF.com, which is owned by SIBO, uh, and he is a big believer in that exact approach. Everybody gets a custom, uh, SMA because the technology has made what used to be complicated and time-consuming and expensive pretty much a, a couple of lines of software and off you go. I remain in, unconvinced, but he and and you both seem to be thinking along the same lines mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. Is, is there really a big market for that today, or is that a future sort of uh, sort of um, product that people could customize if that's what they want. I'm also thinking of things like Motif, where you could kind of create a theme mm-hmm. and it's very low cost to, to do that. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's in the future. I think, the, look, I think there's structural impediments to change in the traditional way in which investment 
services are, are distributed. Sure. It's why you don't see ETFs on on DC menus, right? From a record keeping standpoint, right. it's difficult. So I think they're they're going to continue to be kind of institutional impediments to change. But you know, when we talk about robos and digital advisors and and some of these new startups, you know, where you've got this sort of algorithmic way of creating, you know high volume portfolios, highly customized portfolios. And we're doing parts of this too. Um, I think we'll start to get there, but it may not be the start with the the, the more entrenched players. Why is it that we don't see more ETFs in 401k type vehicles? Is it just inertia? Are the mutual, the the I'm thinking of the admiral type shares of mutual funds are very, very inexpensive compared to the average ETF. Uh, certainly the Spider S and P five hundred is dirt cheap, but for for most four hundred one ks, the mutual funds. I want to phrase this correctly: for the better four hundred one ks, you have options of very very inexpensive mutual funds. Why have an ETFs fund that found their way into that? Is it simply inertia, or are there other reasons? I, I think I think there are other reasons related to record keep the way in which record keepers mm -hmm. um, and those. You know systems, some of which are are um, you know kind of older systems, uh, are designed really to for mutual funds, not for ETFs, hmm. and it's that simple. Huh, that's quite fascinating. So I know uh, I only have you for a finite amount of time. Let me jump to my favorite questions. Um, tell us the most important thing that we don't know about Jason Schwartz. How about um, I? I actually started my career in Hanoi, Vietnam. Really? Yeah. That's fascinating. What were you doing in Vietnam? So I, I had an opportunity to go over there for a summer really as an internship um, in uh, 1996 and um, and ended up staying for a period of time. I worked for uh, a private equity firm, uh, the U.S. normalized trade relations with Vietnam in, in 1997. And so I stayed and worked for the Department of Commerce. Uh, that must have been fascinating. It was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I have a buddy who uh, was doing a speaking tour of Asia, Michael Koval, who was a prior guest way back when, did a speaking tour of Asia, Hong Kong, uh, Beijing, went went through everywhere, ended up in Hanoi and called his roommate in San Diego and said, send my stuff, I'm not coming home. Yeah. He said it was that fascinating yeah. of a place. Yeah, it was amazing. It, it's it's the Wild West and the new face of capitalism. Is that is that Well, and, right, and that at the time it was it was really kind of early in, in opening up and liberalizing the economy. And, uh, you know, up until 1997, U.S. companies were, were not able to do business in Vietnam. And, and so many- Legally. Legally, right. And so it was absolutely fascinating, uh, absolute Wild West. But it really- a great way for me as a young, you know, as a young person to be introduced to business, to do so in a different, in a third world communist country. Right. You know, it's where everybody should start their careers. <laughs> That's very funny. Tell us about some of your early mentors who helped guide your career. Um, yeah. So uh, there was a guy here, Bill Aaron at, at Executive Monetary Management, which was one of my first kind of um, investment related jobs. Um, yeah. I remember him telling me to really, uh, you know, focus on a calling, not so much a job. Um, and that always stayed with me. Uh, you know, at Wilshire, I, you know, uh, it's cliche, but I, I certainly wouldn't be where I am today without the, the time um, that folks like, um, you know, certainly uh, uh, Larry Devonzo, who hired me 
a guy named Chuck Roth. Chip Castile, who was a former BGI, uh, was our CIO, was the smartest person I ever uh, worked with and was one of those guys where, you know, when you have them on your team and you go into a meeting, you just know you have the smartest person in the room on your side. <laughs> but I, I would ask these these all of these folks questions and they were gracious with their time. And um, and that's really, uh, you know, Dennis became a, a, has become a mentor to me as 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 we've moved along. Um, that's a pretty good list. That's a good list. So let's talk about investors. What investors out there influence the way you think about markets, thinking about investing? Who's affected your your perspective? So I, for us, um, and for me, more kind of in that asset allocation manager selection space. Um, you know, Harry Markowitz. I knew you were going to go there. Yeah. It was the name on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. So, so you know, the, the grandfather, father of modern portfolio theory, Bill Sharp. Still, still by the way, very active, both mm-hmm. him and Sharp. Mm-hmm. Both active, mm-hmm. writing, publishing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyone else uh, before I interrupted you? Anyone there else? There was a, uh, a gentleman, Barton Waring, um, who wrote some papers. Uh, he was at, at, at BGI, you know, and that was a, a group that was doing some of the most powerful work in, in kind of what we call active risk optimization, right? How do you how do you build a portfolio of managers right. and really optimize that outcome and control for risk, moving from, you know, sort of total return, total risk to active return, active risk? And I, um, you know, devoured that literature when I was early and trying to figure things out. Very interesting. Um, everybody's favorite question. Tell us about some of your favorite books, be they fiction, nonfiction, investment-related, or otherwise. Well, I, you know, um, sheepish, sheepishly, I will say that my list isn't particularly long. I have, um, I have three kids under the age of ten, uh, so you're busy. <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, I did read uh, Shoe Dog, um, Phil Knight, Phil Knight, very recently, interesting. and I, I. It was one of those books that I, I literally couldn't put down. Uh, Fascinating. They were on the verge of collapse for like the first 10 years yeah. of their existence. Just it's an amazing teetering story. Teetering on the edge. Yeah. Um, right. And and that, you know, that, um, I think how he, how the definition of winning changed for him, you know, originally it was, you know, win at all costs. It was this ultra competitive, sort of more narrowly defined, I must be successful, um, which ultimately kind of became more of a, you know, we want to make contributions. We want to, uh, you know, do things to change people's lives, you know, that, that it became bigger. Right. And, mm-hmm. and I, I really could relate, you know, I think a lot of us as, as we sort of move along in our careers, what becomes of, gosh, I just want to, I want to be successful. I want the company to be successful moves to, I want, we want to, you know, help, help change or improve people's lives, improve their outcomes. And I, I really, you know, he talked about that and it really resonated with me. Hmm. Quite, quite interesting. Uh, what are you excited about right now? Uh, in the industry? In whatever. Well, I, I think the, the you know, we talked a little bit about technology. Um, I think there's a lot to be excited about technology, both as a disruptive force mm-hmm. in changing the way that people consume investment advice. Um, it, you know, the things that, the ways in which we use technology today to, to automate certain tasks, in, in, you know, increasingly really automating elements of the investment process, even um, the delivery of materials to clients, you know, as we think about like, you know, from paper to portal, right? The the pace of change, I think that we're living in right now is so rapid. And it's exciting because, you know, there are elements uh, within the financial services space that, um, you know, have probably been untouched for a long time. <laughs> and to, to say the least, to say the least. Yeah. And so that, you know, that's either uh, horrifying, right? And scary, 
or it's a huge opportunity. And, and I, I think it's a huge opportunity and, and I'm excited to, to be able to participate in it. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Um, so, you know, long list here. Um, I, I, you know, I, 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 hiring is an area where, um, so challenging, so challenging. Right. And, and I think it's, it's an area too, where, you know, uh, you go to school and you learn, you, you go to graduate school, you learn a little bit more, uh, you, you know, you, you, you have opportunities to, to work in different jobs and assuming one doesn't work in a human resources capacity, you know, hiring is not ever really something that, that I think we learn how to do. Right? It's not. It's not a class it's in not school. A class, is it? It's not taught. Um, so you have this, you know, belief that it's kind of intuitive. Great people just hire great people, um, and and I think it's something that I personally actually spend a lot of time on trying to get better, trying to approach it from a more scientific way. And and you know, so failure would failures would clearly be the times we got it wrong, the times mm-hmm. I made a mistake. Um, wrong person, wrong role, not a great fit. Um, you know, and all of the sort of classic, in retrospect, biases that 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 prevail. Sure. Um, but there's, you know, that's sort of top of my list right now in terms of. I I think that's the hardest thing that any company has to do. It it's just uh, there's a little bit of luck. It's just one of those things. And I've had I've had numerous people sitting in that seat say variations of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Hiring good people is the hardest thing to mm-hmm. do because. It's just not a natural skill set. That's right. It, it, it's amazing. What do you do for fun? What do you do out of the office to kick back, relax, and uh, have a good time? So um, I have um, actually become slightly obsessed with uh, Olympic weightlifting. Really? <laughs> yeah. So so that's that's become kind of my my hobby. Uh, what do you What do you bench press? <laughs> no, no, no. It's, this is this is this is the clean and jerk. Oh, and geez. this is the snatch. So these are the two lifts that are in the Olympics. <sighs> Those are brutal. Yeah, so, that is not easy to do. Yeah, so so that's I mean, and there there's a reason they're Olympic lifts, right? Right. Um, and that's become um, a real probably you know the most challenging kind of physical thing um, that I've done, which which has been. How did you, you know, find your fun. way into that? That's amazing. Yeah, so so I think a lot of um, if you go into gyms these days, the the sort of CrossFit, right? Um, uh, y- you know, flipping uh, over tires, flipping and over tires, and burpees and, and all that stuff, and and, and uh, pull ups, and and including some of these lifts. And she, you know, folks, you know, dropping barbells and, right. and you know, chalk flying, and I, you know, after years of just you know more of kind of the bench press and and you know whatever it was to, to kind of just stay in shape. You see these guys slamming bars, and and it's like, oh, this would be a great way to to kind of blow off steam, yeah. and um and yeah, I just started, you know, basically just you know ha- had somebody kind of walk me through it and and continue to 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 uh to try to progress and and enjoy it. So so what do the Olympians do in in those sort of weight? What sort of numbers? Well, so we think about it, the 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 some of the best lifters are lifting from a barbell from the ground from, the, from a dead yeah on the ground over two times their body weight over their heads that's amazing so if you just think about it from that standpoint plus pounds 400 plus pounds you know over their head um in a variety of ways and and what's 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 really interesting is it's not just about brute strength it's about technique. speed and technique uh-huh. and and that's where it becomes this, you know, and and obviously the sort of the mental kind of agility, but um, 
So it's funny. It's funny you say speed and technique. I was just having a conversation last night. The woman who won the U.S. Open in in Forest Hills. uh, I'm drawing a blank on her name. It was a whole big issue with Serena Williams and Mm -hmm. and that. Mm -hmm. She crushes the ball like Mm -hmm. 135 miles an hour. She can't be more than 100 pounds Mm -hmm. soaking wet. She's this tiny thing. And the answer is it's all technique. It's not power. You're not just muscling it through. I had no idea that was true That's for right. uh, for Olympic uh, deadlifts like well, that. Well, and I'll, I'll sort of say that it's it's actually true for a lot of things in life. Yes, thankfully, absolutely. Thankfully, right? <laughs> for those of us who aren't necessarily 6'2 and jacked, yes, absolutely. And um, our, our last two uh, questions, what sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone just starting their career uh, if they were interested in going into finance? First, I would say there's a lot of different roles within you know, within the finance realm. And so, you know, I'm a good example of, I'm actually, I didn't rise to the ranks as an investor. Right. And so, um, you know, I've been always more focused on the client and business side of the business of investment management. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, there's there's a number of different roles available and to sort of learn about industries and roles, um, you know, is incredibly important. Um, the other I would say, and I'll sort of take a page from Phil Knight's um, memoir, about seeking a calling and and really using your 20s where the currency is really uh, less about uh, you know how much money you're making and and should be more about the knowledge uh, both about uh, you know what makes you tick mm-hmm. um, and what you di- what doesn't and and really to ultimately try to find that calling because it's it's the true calling that's going to make uh, you know the hard work more fulfilling the disappointments you know easier to bear and and the highs. You know, when those highs come, um, and this is what, what Phil Knight says, there's nothing like it. Mm. And, and that's been certainly my experience. And our final question, what is it that you know about the world of investing today that you wish you knew 20 years ago? Well, you know, I'll say that um, simple beats complex almost all the time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that's something that, you know, the further I've come, the you know, the the more kind of the realization that the the really complex, difficult to unpack, um, you know, strategies, whether it's investment managers, whether it's, you know, the latest kind of whiz bang, you know, idea, um, oftentimes, you know, really well diversified uh, portfolios, um, you know, really good, uh, you know, investment managers or passive products, um, do really, really well. We have been speaking with Jason Schwartz. He is the president of Wilshire Funds Management and Wilshire Analytics. If you enjoyed this conversation, well, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you could see any of the previous, let's call it 220 uh, prior conversations uh, that we've had. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff who helps put this together each week. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. Medina Parwana is my producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.